Well, we are now coming to really the climax of Romans chapter 7. We've been working our way methodically through verses 13 through 25, and it all builds really to this verse, verse 24, this cry that Paul puts out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the question. Paul is in straits. He's in distress. And you have to ask why. Well, we have to understand what led to this point. So just by way of a quick review, what we've seen in chapter 7, and particularly this portion of chapter 7, is that the law has a very good function. It has opened up Paul's eyes, his spiritual eyes, to show him his true condition as he is, a sinner, one who is um, covetous. So not just a sinner, but sinful. As you may recall from a few sermons past, when Paul was saying in verse 7, he says, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. The text in the grammar actually says, The law kept on saying, Paul, you shall not covet. It hounded him. It did not leave him alone until he knew that he was a sinner before God. And it broke his confidence in himself. He was a proud Jewish Pharisee who believed he knew the law well. Trained by Gamaliel, um, a prominent teacher in Israel. But Paul came to understand that he really knew nothing of the law because his heart was not in it. His heart had been closed, blinded to the truth of God. And when he came to see that he was a sinner, he was broken. He found that he was dead, slayed by the laws, the way he puts it. All his confidence came crumbling down. And rather than vilifying the law, he vindicates the law. And he says, the law is good. The law is good because it showed me that truth. I had it wrong. The law was never intended to be the vehicle of my salvation, but just to point out how I couldn't possibly be saved by my own efforts. That's the goodness of the law. And so then he proceeds from verses 14 on to make this case that he is carnal or of flesh, sold under sin. He talks about his deeds, that he does what he does not approve of. In fact, he hates what he does in the flesh, but that he has new desires. Desires for righteousness, for holiness, desires for pleasing the Lord. Desires, in fact, to keep the law of God perfectly. And this desire, this new desire, is in itself a wonderful evidence that Paul, as he's recounting his experience here, in the present tense, by the way, is a saved, regenerate man. And this is the struggle of the believer, of every believer, not just Paul. That we have these two identities in ourselves that we have come to understand by the goodness of God's law. We've come to understand that we have flesh that is sold under sin, that only can sin, that is a slave of sin, but that we have a new man, an inner man in each of us, which is Christ in you and in me, 
who loves righteousness and who seeks to obey with the mind, this new mind, the mind of Christ, his word. Both of those identities are in every true believer. And so what we have is the war within. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Paul is engaged in a battle against his enemies, and his greatest enemies are within himself. It's his own sinfulness. And the way he puts it is that he sees in verse 23 another law is what my Bible says in the the New King James, but it's really a rule. It's a governing principle that's in his members, in in every part of his physical and non-physical body, including his mind, his emotions, his affections, in the first birth from Adam. He finds a, a rule that in those members there is a war taking place against the law of his mind, that's his new mind in Christ, and bringing him into captivity to the law of sin or to the principle of sin which is in his members. He is overwhelmed because he's realized my warfare is not just on one front, it's on every front and that f- those fronts are within me. How can I get away from myself? That is what builds to this climax, this desperation, this plea with the Lord, who will deliver me, O wretched man that I am. So I'd like to focus us this morning really in two points as we, we're just going to spend time in the, these texts of verses 24 and 25. But the outline is, is very simple. It's two points. The first is the cry of the righteous the cry of the righteous, and that's what we see in verse 24. And then the answer for the righteous is what we see in verse 25. So let's look at this cry of the righteous. When Paul says wretched, what does he mean? We use that word, but let's get precise about what we mean. The word in Greek means miserable. It means one who is enduring or undergoing great trials continually. It's a a state of affliction. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, uses this word, um, wretched, three times in the Old Testament. And it translates the word this way, as plundered, spoiled, or destroyed. Destroyed and dead, really, synonymously. So that's the idea of wretched, Constantly afflicted, in great trial, plundered, spoiled. And why does Paul feel this way? Why is he claiming this? Well, because as we just reviewed, the law came to him in great power and showed him his true condition. And that's what produces this awareness that he is sick, spiritually sick and dying. But Paul also sees that he has this new man. This new man who loves the Lord, who is redeemed, who loves the law of God and hates his own sin, who wants to obey 100% and can't quite do it. And it's interesting as you track Paul's progress across his own life. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. This is a mature man in the faith, a model for all of us, no doubt. As you track his progress, what he says about himself evidences that he is feeling more of this wretchedness as he grows in grace. That's a paradox. That's counterintuitive. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he talks about how he is the least of the apostles. He moves from there to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says that he is the least of all saints. So from the least of the apostles, a limited group, to the least of all saints. And then by the end of his ministry, 
In 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. The greatest of sinners. This is the Apostle Paul. There's a paradox here, but this is how true growth in grace happens in the Christian life. Sin is Paul's mortal enemy and ours, and it is that which infects all of who we are. It overpowers us, it makes us feel outnumbered, and it produces this cry in the inner man. Sin is the main affliction. Sin is the cause of wretchedness, this feeling of being plundered or that sin has hijacked our bodies, spoiled us and destroyed us. And so his cry is, who will deliver me from this body of death? He uses the word for body, which is a physical body. It's soma. We use somatic in the English language from this Greek word. It, it means his tent, his, his house where he dwells. Who will deliver me out of, literally is what it says in the Greek, this house of death? Who is going to save me? This is a lament. Paul is lamenting his own sinfulness. And the question that you might ask yourself is this. If Paul is a saved, regenerate man, which is what we've been espousing in this passage, that he is, and I believe he is, why then is he calling out for salvation? Why does one who is saved cry for salvation? And he gives us an answer in the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Look at that with me. Actually, starting in verse 22. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. So, those who, are, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that could be applied most immediately in the context to the apostles or to the Jews to whom the gospel comes first, but all who have, another sense of this is who have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. That would apply to all believers. All who have this earnest, who have this promise, a pledge from God Himself, that they will be finally redeemed, are given the Holy Spirit of God. And for those people, there is a groaning that we do within ourselves. Uh, uh, the root word of that word groan is narrow. It means, it implies pressure. It implies tightness. It's, in fact, the same word that's used in, by Jesus in Matthew seven fourteen when he says, How narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Narrow, tight, pressure. That's the groaning. It, it causes us to sigh within ourselves. Longing for what? Eagerly waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. That's a final glorification is what he's talking about. Final deliverance from sin when he will drop this body of flesh permanently. Listen to Paul say the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul in this context is saying, look, the enemies of the cross, wicked men who may even say that they are Christians, they set their mind on earthly things. But your citizenship, that is your commonwealth, the the place where you truly hail from and where you belong, is not on the earth. It's in heaven. And so we, in contrast to the wicked, are to set our minds on heavenly things, on things above. Because we eagerly wait for, we very patiently and with, with much longing look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. That's a way of saying our body of humiliation or this body of the earth which is tainted with sin. It's weak. It's sinful. That's what he wants and looks forward to the Lord Jesus changing by the very power that enables Jesus to subdue everything in the world to himself. Great power. That's the cry of Paul, and that's the cry of the believer who will deliver me finally from this body of death. I'm longing to get out of it. And just to give you a a visual that might help in the mind of what Paul may have been feeling in this struggle Um, apparently there was an ancient punishment for murderers where when the murderer, as his punishment, he was strapped to, tied to his victim, the one he murdered. And he was to carry or drag that victim around tied to his body so that the decay from the victim would infect the murderer and slowly kill him. That's the picture that Paul may have in mind when he describes this body of death that he is so longing to be free from. Get this body off of me. I don't want to drag this around anymore. I hate it. So Paul is a saved man, no doubt. And he groans for redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is the cry of the righteous. All we in Christ know something of this longing, this cry of the righteous, and it intensifies as we grow in grace. We have to understand that Scripture speaks of salvation in three tenses. It speaks of salvation in the past tense, we were saved. In the present tense, we are being saved. And in the future tense, we will or we shall be saved. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, for example, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, past tense. And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Salvation accomplished, past tense. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is present tense sanctification in all of us. We are being saved by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And then we shall be saved. Romans 5, 9. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, that's looking to the past, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 3 uh, through 5, Peter is talking about this inheritance, this salvation which the Lord has prepared and reserved in heaven for all of us in Christ. And he says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation is already purchased and accomplished for you. It's just waiting to be revealed. There's nothing more that needs to be done in order to earn the salvation that's been earned at the cross by Jesus Christ. It's packaged and prepared and waiting for God's timing to deliver it to us. Final glorification of the body. So you could say this, all those who have been justified by faith in Christ long to be sanctified in this life by Christ, and all those who are being sanctified long to be glorified. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that is the cry of the righteous alone. Only the righteous cry out for deliverance from sin. I want to give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament and the New just to help underscore this point that the righteous cry for deliverance from sin. Think of Job, for example. Job in the Old Testament. Job who is described as blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. He repudiated repudiated evil, turned away from it. And we know in the story of Job that God brought intense pressure in his life taking away almost everything that he had except for his life, allowing Satan to touch Job and afflict him greatly in order that God's grace would be revealed through Job. Because God would reveal Job's fleshly heart to Job's own eyes. Job was a righteous man, but he stumbled and fell just like all of us do in this life. And God drew that out of his heart and showed him his own folly, his own sin, that he would ever think of accusing the Lord God Almighty, who is right in all that he does. And God shows him his righteousness and his greatness to humble Job. And Job, at the end of his account in chapter 42, verse 6, says, Therefore, I abhor myself, reject myself. I I retract and pull back all of my arguments and accusations against the Lord, and I repent in dust and ashes. He's saying, I've sinned against the Lord, and he repents. That's a change of mind. I was thinking wrongly. I said the wrong things about you, Lord, and I'm turning from that. That's a call for deliverance. Deliver me from my sin. Lord, I've been wrong. Save me. That's the cry of the righteous. Psalm, the psalmist in 119, who is described as the servant of the Lord, who loves the Lord and who loves his law, he delights in it. Listen to a few of these statements from this psalmist in Psalm 119, starting in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 29, remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. This is the cry of the righteous. 
Lord, if you don't do this for me, my soul will cling to the dust. It will melt from heaviness. I will be a liar. I will prefer covetousness to your testimonies. And I will look only at worthless things. God, help me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. These are saved people who have this cry. David, in Psalm 6, is describing a chastening of the Lord upon him. The Lord's correction, as a father does with his children. And David is in deep distress Listen to his heart in some of these verses. He says in Psalm 6, verse 4, Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Why would he say return, O Lord, if he didn't feel some distance from the Lord? Feeling the, the pressure that the Lord had brought upon him as he's crying out. In verse 6, he says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. He's describing sleeplessness. He's describing a physical condition of agony that no doubt he is in because his soul is in agony. David again in Psalm 31. Psalm 31, which we read for our call to worship this morning. Look at verses 9 and 10. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Brothers and sisters, this is what I would call wretched man theology. Here it is. His life is spent with grief. His years with sighing. This man is afflicted. He's in constant toil. I don't think that he's only talking about the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah here. He's talking about years of feeling this way. A a sighing and an affliction that endures his whole life. Why? He knows the wretchedness of his sin. And David as a mouthpiece for God, is also a type of Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come. Christ, who would be described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, David knew something of that here too. But David knew something of that because of his own indwelling sin. Christ knew something of that because of our sins placed on him, the sinless one. David continues in Psalm 38 with the same theme of a cry for deliverance to the one who is chastening him, the Lord God. Let's look at this together. Psalm 38. And just read, uh, starting in verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, speaking to the Lord, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. David is in deep 
distress again because of his own sinfulness and God's heavy hand upon him. He calls it the anger of the Lord. This is interesting because we know that in Christ, and this is true for David too, looking forward to Messiah and trusting in him, there is no condemnation for God's own, for his elect. God has atoned for their sin. His wrath is turned away. But there is also this reality that every time we do sin, it does rouse the anger of the Lord. He hates sin. He hates sin. The good news is that he's dealt with that anger and, and, and wrath in Christ. He does chasten his own. He turns us away from our sin, and this is how he does it. So he's not condemned. This is the action of a loving father, not a condemning general. Turning him from his sin to righteousness. One more time, David, in Psalm 142, and this is what we were reading last week. Verses 6 and 7, David says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. What is all this? This is all wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death, illustrated in God's men in the Old Testament. Now, when we come to the New Testament, when we look at the people who earnestly pursued Jesus, who were they? Who were these people? But ones who knew, who knew that they themselves were sick, sick with incurable disease, and sick with incurable conditions, blindness, deafness, leprosy, which is a, a, a damage to the nerves so you can't feel anything anymore. Um, demon possession, paralysis, deathbeds. These are conditions for which there is no cure in the flesh. These are the ones who either they themselves or on behalf of their loved ones came to Jesus in desperation because they knew that they had no other hope. And they came to Christ as their only hope of salvation. I mean, just take a look at the cover of the bulletin this morning. I put a quote on there from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which says this, A sinner does not decide for Christ. A sinner flies to Christ in utter helplessness and despair. Have we heard about this language of making a decision for Christ? I think we hear it all the time. I mean, how often is Christ preached as though he were a decision that needs to be made, one of many options to consider? Sinners are encouraged to, quote-unquote, decide for Christ and just accept him in order to be saved. And the question I have for all of us is this, is that a right approach given this wretched man theology that we are learning about this morning? This deep affliction of soul and desperation for deliverance. Think about it this way. When Israel was in the wilderness complaining and God sent serpents to bite them, did they consider their options for healing? Or was there one option for healing? The standard, the rod that Moses lifted up with a bronze serpent representing Jesus Christ who would be made sin for us, 
who would take our sin and therefore become a curse like the serpent. And all who looked to that sign of Messiah to come was saved. All who knew that they had been bitten by these serpents with the poison, the venom, who knew that they would die, had desperation to look. There was no delay. Those who looked, looked immediately. But those who had hard hearts, who didn't truly realize their calamity, they didn't look and they died. No one goes to an emergency room unless they have a sense of desperation, do they? It is with the same desperation that we must come to Christ. He is not an option. He is not a decision. He is life and help when there is no other life and help. When the alternative is death, he is life. Bunyan, John Bunyan, illustrated this in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, uh, whose name is Christian, was meeting with evangelist who gave him this. And he read these simple words, flee the wrath to come. And Christian said, well, where am I going to go? And evangelist points him to the wicked gate. He says, you go there, you follow the light. And he begins to run and leave his house. And his wife and his children come after him And they plead with him not to leave the city of destruction. But he stuffs his fingers in his ears and he cries, Life! Life! Eternal life! And he keeps running. That's the desperation that we're talking about here. This man knew that if he stayed in that city, he would be destroyed. The wrath of God was coming. It was imminent. He couldn't do anything but leave and run while he was leaving. I think that's something of what the Lord Jesus himself means when he says in Matthew 11, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Brothers and sisters, this is the straight gate. It is narrow, it is tight, and those who want to enter have to press hard into it. There is a real effort that's required to get into the kingdom of God. It's not passive. We're not standing back and making decisions, door one, door two, door three. It's, I've got arrows being shot at me, and if I don't get through that crevice in the wall and squeeze through with all my might, I'm not making it in. You see the difference? That's the desperation that God creates in the hearts of his people to fly to Christ. And that's what's growing in each of us. I think it's interesting because in Pilgrim's Progress again, we have a vignette, we have a snapshot or a picture of Pilgrim getting to the wicked gate and then he gets through, Christian. And then we talk about the narrow path and the journey and all the perils that he finds on that path. But really, if we understand that no one enters the kingdom of heaven who don't take it by force, I think in a very real sense, this straight gate, this narrow gate is a picture of the entire Christian life. We're always pressing into the kingdom. We're always pushing because we know that wrath comes for those who are not pushing into the kingdom. We're in the kingdom and yet we want more, don't we? We want the consummation of the kingdom. We long for the day when the body itself will be redeemed. 
Listen to the heart of some of these examples in, in the New Testament of these men and people who had incurable conditions as they come to the Savior. There's two blind men that come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Verse 27 says, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Actually, it probably sounded a lot different because the word that's used for crying there is the word croaking or screaming like a bird would do, a shriek, a high, shrill, pitched, loud sound that probably would sound very alarming if we heard it right now. That's the kind of shriek that these two blind men sent out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on us. Or the father of a demon-possessed son in Matthew 17, verses 14 and 15, he comes to the Lord and he kneels down before him. He humbles himself greatly before Christ. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. He was desperate. Even the disciples could not cast out this demon. So they come, he comes to Jesus in desperation. Lord, save my son. Or the tax collector in Luke 18. This tax collector, we're told, unlike the Pharisee who approached the temple nearly, went up to it, he stood afar off and would not, not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you hear the heart in all of these cries? Why do we have these examples? Is it just to show that Jesus is a powerful person who can heal physical disease? Or is it to show us that the one who has the power to heal all physical ailments, the even incurable ones, is the one who has the power to forgive sins and save the soul? That's this Jesus we're talking about, who I proclaim to you and whom you are proclaiming to the world. This Jesus heals to show us a picture of what all the afflicted by sin must come to him for. Spiritual healing. We are all blind and deaf, leprous. We don't feel the things of God. We're, we're blind to it, insensitive to it. We're spiritually dead until Christ wakes us up and makes us realize we're alive, and yet at the same time, this body of death still hangs to me in the flesh. This is wretchedness. This is wretchedness. And here's the irony. Not everyone realizes that he or she is spiritually sick with this incurable disease called sin. Not everyone realizes that. And so people are walking around, living their lives, acting like everything is fine, and they're really a corpse under a death sentence. Awareness is the key. And you say, how does this awareness come about for a person? I mean, how does somebody just come to understand this? Well, again, in Paul's case, the law came in power. The commandment came and woke him up. It's the power of God. I want us to see this together in Psalm 107. We read this this morning, but let's revisit this now. Psalm 107. And see how it is that the Lord causes somebody to feel their affliction. Psalm 107. Hmm. 
let's just take it from verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, talking about the ocean. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Why is the Lord so good in this context? Because he is a Savior. And how is he a Savior? He first raises up the waves of the sea to create the panic in the people. To cause them to stagger like drunken men so that they cry out to him for deliverance. It's the Lord who himself causes the sea to rage. This is an example that you can imagine as a sailor, perhaps on a boat with these waves that are going up and down so much that you probably can't even see which is which. And that would be terrifying. But something of that storm is what he causes to happen in the hearts of his people. It's like being at Sinai again, the thunderings, the lightnings, the the smoke, the darkness, the clashing sounds, the trumpet blasts, all that terrifying phenomena to the physical senses, that takes place in the soul when God calls a person so that he responds in this way, Lord, save me, deliver me. This is the sovereignty of our God. I mean, where is it? Verse 33, he turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He knows how to take somebody's life, which is going well, so-called, and absolutely destroy it, dry it out so that they have a sense that they have nothing and they're desperate for salvation. And he, conversely, can cause the wilderness to become pools of water and dry land become water springs where fruitfulness results. This is God. God is able to do all things. He is the one who breaks us in order that he might bind us up again, heal us. Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord speaking of himself says, Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. So, How do we get this sense of desperation? The Lord creates it in the hearts of his people. Thank God he does. This is the blessedness of wretchedness. Paradox. But so true. There's a wonderful hymn called, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched. Just listen to this third verse. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. We know that. Then he goes on to say, this he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. That 
knowledge. That desperation is what he gives to his children, that they would call on the name of the Lord and he graciously answers. Think about this in terms of the Lord Jesus' own words in the parable, um, the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who are wretched, for they will be comforted. Thank you, Lord. There is a wonderful prayer in the Valley of Vision, which we read from regularly here. In the introduction, um, I would commend it highly to you all. I'm just going to read an excerpt here. And it's called the Valley of Vision, which, by the way, is a paradox in itself. People don't get vision from being down in a valley surrounded by mountains. You go to the mountaintops to get your vision of the horizon. But in Christ, we're in, the vis- we're in the valley, and that's where we have vision wonderfully. Listen to this. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Isn't that wonderful? The unbeliever knows nothing of that. He does not cry out for deliverance. Why? Because he doesn't realize that he's in trouble. Those who are well have no need of a physician, do they? Those who can see, quote-unquote, have no need for spiritual sight. Those who think that they're clean have no need to be cleansed from spiritual leprosy. Those who don't think they're lost have no need to be found. The unbeliever may sorrow over sin, and indeed we see examples of that throughout the Scripture. But it's not a sorrow that ever leads to repentance, I repent in dust and ashes, Lord. No, it's a sorrow that results because the person has been found out, because they don't want to be caught, they don't want to be punished. That's what they're sorrowing about, not because they've offended the glorious Almighty God who calls us to Himself in allegiance. And we in our sinfulness have turned our backs to Him and said we want to live our own way and not for you. The cry of the righteous is always, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then we have the answer for the righteous. Look at verse 25, back to Romans chapter 7. The answer, here's the answer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, who has been describing this war within, now turns his attention to Christ, and he thanks Jesus Christ our Lord. And is very simple. Why would he thank Jesus Christ, his Lord? What's his whole purpose in writing this letter of Romans that we've been going through over the last couple of years? The whole purpose is for Paul to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has appointed one Savior to stand in the place of ruined sinners so that those sinners could be rescued and brought back to God forever. That's the message that he is unfolding for us in this letter to the Romans. It's the gospel. The gospel which is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just will live by faith. And Paul's um, great... What he came to understand, and what Martin Luther came to understand, is that, and I hope what we've come to understand, is that the faith and the righteousness, excuse me, the righteousness that has been revealed by God is not just God showing everybody that God is righteous. That doesn't save anybody. He's revealed his righteousness in the sense that he's given his righteousness to all who put their trust in his Son. That was the groundbreaking discovery that Luther had that he understood as he was studying for a class as a friar, as a, as a Catholic, to teach this text that he didn't even understand. And the Lord opened his eyes. This is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it's all about Jesus Christ. This gospel is not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This whole Bible is gospel because it all points to Christ. It's the good news that Jesus is the Savior That's what we look for in the Scriptures, and that's what we see. Everything, I'm not going to go through a whole review of Romans at this point, but it's so wonderful to see that every part, every blessing of salvation in the gospel is all centered in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's really the point. It's all centered in Him. That's why the Scripture says in Acts 4.12, there is Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, question, is Christianity exclusive? You bet it is. Truth, by definition, is exclusive, and we are not ashamed of that. There is no other way to be saved than through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And anyone who's not willing to stand on that rock is not a Christian. No, there are not many ways to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is that narrow gate. Narrow because there's only one. And we press into the kingdom through him. Why did Paul thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord? He knew the gospel. He understood doctrine, but he also knew something of God's deliverance experientially in his own life. Just listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So wonderful. Paul knows the faithfulness of God in his experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, these are familiar verses, I know. He says this in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's talking about the, the body of humiliation. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. There's the lifelong struggle of the wretched man that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. There's his confidence. He's delivered me my whole life in my sanctification. I know he's going to deliver me at the final day. Praise the Lord. 
I want you to also notice back in Romans 7 that Paul is careful about the titles he uses for the Lord here. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's three titles there. Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah, or Anointed One, and Lord, Master, Sovereign. The question is, why would Paul use that threefold titling for Jesus Christ our Lord in this connection with a confident assertion that Jesus Christ will deliver him ultimately? Why? Because unless Jesus is your Lord, unless he's your master, the sovereign of your life, you won't be ultimately saved. You won't be saved at all. There's no power in you or in me to save ourselves. In other words, if we were to take Christ as Savior, meaning he only saved us from our sins, he cleansed us from our sins, but he's not Lord and master of my life. There's no Holy Spirit power through my sanctification How am I ever going to reach holiness? How am I ever going to be delivered? There's no chance. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. And I would too. But in God's economy, it doesn't work like that. He gives us himself by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to energize us, to desire to do what is right, and to actually do what is right as the new pattern of our lives, to become more holy in practice. That's because he's our Lord. In other words, Jesus is not just Lord in the abstract. He's our personal Lord and Savior. He rules and reigns on the thrones of our hearts. We are not just governed externally by some list of commandments to keep. How are we governed? We're governed by the internal principle of the Holy Spirit himself who writes his word on our hearts, beloved so that we want to obey and we actually have the power to obey. That's the dynamic of Christianity, which is unlike anything else. It is the life of God in the soul of a man. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that's why we have this confident assertion. And that's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is no way he is not going to bring you to the end if he started to work in you. If he has invested in you by paying for your sins and by indwelling you, taking up residence in you and reshaping and reforming you from within, he is not going to let that work not come to fruition. He's going to bring it to the end. That's our great confidence. God is at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then Paul says this, So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So this is a summary statement, clearly, of the whole of what he's been talking about in 14 through 25 of Romans 7. He's saying, I myself, he's talking about the real Paul, not the flesh, but the new Paul, the inner man, with a new mind. This is the one who slaves in the law of God, who serves, who is given over to the law of God. But he's recognizing at the same time that his flesh is given over to the law or the principle of sin. It's sold under sin and it always will be. That sounds a little bit morose, doesn't it? It sounds like a standoff. It sounds like you have two equal and opposite forces that are colliding with each other. And what a strange thing to put after a paean of praise. Who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, 
just going to be in perpetual conflict from the rest, for the rest of my days. It seems a little bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? What is Paul doing there? I think what Paul is doing is he is stating a fact. He's come to grips with his true condition, who, who he is in Christ, that he has a constitution that is both redeemed and unredeemed in the same person. And he longs to be free of it. He hates it. It's the body of death that is, he's dragging. And that would be a totally depressing situation if that were the end of the story. But it's not. It's not. These, these chapter headings that we have are arbitrary sometimes. It's not how the letter was written. It was written as a cohesive letter. We're meant to read on. <laughs> Look at Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I feel utterly condemned as a wretched man. Remember this, there's no condemnation for you in Christ. You may feel condemned, but you're not because Christ has paid it all for you. See, we're going to get into chapter 8, Lord willing, next time, which is the Holy Spirit's chapter. It's the chapter where we learn about the hero of our sanctification and the one who gives us this first deliverance which we are experiencing now on earth as he prepares us for a final deliverance to come at the end. This is not a standoff between two equal forces. This is important to understand, and I think will encourage your spirits. Where we are going with this is, let me just give you a preview right now in Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If it's true that the new man that we all possess is not able to sin, and that's the case from Ephesians 4.24. We looked at that the last couple of times. This, this new man that is created in true righteousness and holiness, not able to sin. What is our sanctification? What is it we're growing in? What is it that's actually changing? The Spirit of God which is the spirit and power that raised Jesus from the dead, is working in us to give life to our mortal bodies. He is now bringing our flesh, which is in opposition to our spiritual mind, under control more and more so that we resemble the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his flesh was, guess what? Perfect. Sinless. That's what we are being perfected to. The mind, the, the, the new man is already redeemed. The body is not yet redeemed. So the, the Spirit of God in His infinite wisdom changes the ability that we have to bring our body into subjection more and more to holiness so that the whole man, your flesh and your spirit, are being brought into conformity with Christ as our ultimate model. That's the good news. John the Baptist he must increase and I must decrease. That's going on in each of us. We are being renewed in our minds as we set our minds on heavenly things, on Christ and his word. That's what's getting stronger. The flesh, though, it is still a strong force. I'm, I want you to hear me. It is a strong force, but it's weakening. We were crucified with Christ that the body of sin would be deprived of its power. So this is the direction that's happening. We're getting stronger in the spirit. We're getting weaker in the flesh because his spirit is dominating our flesh more and more. 
Is that not good news? That's great news. And that will finally be accomplished when he comes for us at the end. Do you ever ask yourself if you were a child of God? You know, it's the children of God who struggle with this. Constantly wondering, have I done enough? Is my repentance genuine repentance? Have I done enough to please the Lord in this new pattern of life that I'm living? But here's the question I want you to think about. Can you resonate with this war within that we've been learning about in Romans 7? Can you understand that you are incurably sick in your flesh? Do you hate your sin? Do you feel like you have a body of death strapped to you and you long to be free of it? Have you found as you cry out to the Lord that your answer is Jesus Christ, your Lord? And do you continue to find that he is your answer as you cry out to him? Those who know that they are wretched are the truly blessed ones because we are the ones who find our answer in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we're going to struggle with the flesh until the day we die. Yes, you will feel more unholy as you grow in sanctification paradoxically. But the victory is ours, brothers and sisters. It is ours, and Jesus Christ will make it sure. He's promised it to himself and to us and to all his children. May that knowledge, may that knowledge lead us to trust him more, to worship him more, to love him more. Let's pray. Father, we... We know something of this wretchedness in our own souls in our, as we cry out, Lord, for help in this perpetual struggle with sin, these enemies that have infiltrated all our members, that war constantly against our mind. Lord, how quick we are to stumble, to speak a casual or careless, hurtful word, to give a, a look that is harsh, Father, to put ourselves first instead of preferring others. God, forgive us. And thank you, Lord, that we are forgiven in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work in each one of us who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. For deliverance in this life and our sanctification and an ultimate deliverance yet to be revealed. Father, thank you for the assurance that your salvation is complete and just waiting to be revealed. There is nothing that we can do to earn it at all. But Lord, just to rest in what you have done, in all the work you've accomplished in your Son. What a glorious work it is, Lord. May we recognize it more and more as we study your word together. May our hearts be drawn to you and knit in love with each other through the gospel. May we find our greatest joy and our only joy in you. Lord, Thank you for this body and for your spirit at work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.